Our scripture lesson today comes from the gospel according to St. Luke chapter 12. Um, Hear these words of Jesus and share them with me. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn. Yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable you are than birds. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. They are pushy, forceful, impatient, always in a hurry, and they're usually ready to tell others how to do their jobs just a little better. You know what we call those folks? Control freaks. Maybe you've heard of one. Maybe you are one. What are we to do? Well, my name is Mark Foster. I'm a recovering control freak. (laughs) And perhaps you are as well. We are in a sermon series called Unlocking Greatness. Uh, Five lessons everyone can learn, and particularly um, what we're really inviting you to is to consider and actually put into practice reclaiming five initiation rights of young adolescent adults uh, into adulthood. And it's also true for those of us who haven't yet um, taken these steps in our lives. So today we come to you are not in control. This is lesson four. You're not in control, but there's hope. There's good news because God is. God is in control and we thank God for that. So as a way to catch us up to today, um, as an introduction, um, our preface is this. We have a comfort crisis. Will you say that with me? We have a comfort crisis. Scientists at New York University identify uh, identify 1990, that's the year I graduated college, as the beginning of helicopter parenting. How many of y'all have heard of that? You all heard of helicopter parenting? Okay, you all know that term. The researchers say that's when many parents stopped allowing their children to go outside unsupervised until they were as old as 16 due to unfounded media-driven fears of kidnapping. Now, when I was a child, this is what happened. My mom would grab a fly swatter this time of year and go, get out of my house. Don't come back until the streetlights come on. I need some peace in my house. And then we would... Go out and play. We would ride our bicycles through mud puddles and uh, make mud pies and you know, play hide and seek and kick the can and all sorts of things. And then when the lights came on, we would, we would come home. You know, the mean streets of the 80s, right? The feral children that had no parenting, apparently. Um, but Michael Easter goes on. He says, we've now deteriorated from helicopter parenting to snowplow parenting. I'd never even heard of that. He says, these parents violently force any and all obstacles out of their child's path. Preventing kids from exploring their edges is largely thought to be the cause of the abnormally high and growing rates of anxiety and depression in young people. A study found that anxiety and depression rates in college students rose roughly 80% in the generation just after helicopter parenting began. Now, this is not to make anybody feel bad. It is to say that we've got to learn how to do hard things. We have to learn that we are able to do some really hard things and to learn how to navigate life. Or otherwise, it is a very scary place to live. 
So how do we do that? Well, there is a way back, and it's these five lessons or these five hard truths of life. And lesson one is that life is hard. Say that with me. Life is hard. But you don't have to worry about that. Because Jesus says we're going to find rest for our souls if we follow Jesus in doing God's will. Jesus says as much. He says, come to me, all you that are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke, which means my way of life, uh, doing the Father's will, which is what Jesus always did. Take that way of life upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So we need to teach our young people not to run from pain, but to embrace it and to say, what, is, what am I learning from this? Right? And, and so the idea is this, that the smaller the failures early, the better. Because if you don't learn how to fail well and learn the lessons of that pain in your life, physical, emotional, spiritual, however that is, then what happens is you become more and more afraid when you have bigger things at stake. And then you're afraid to fail because you've never failed before or you've never been allowed to fail before. And then it gets really hard to live through. So Father Richard Rohr, um, he has a book called Adam's Return that I would recommend to you. Um, He writes it like this. He says, if we do not transform our pain, we will transmit it in some form. And, and I think this gets to the, the biblical idea of generational curses, right? So if you have pain in your family system and you don't do anything with it, if you don't transform it, you will simply transmit it to the next generation. That's how that works. And so that was lesson one. Lesson two is that, say this with me, you're not that important, but your name is written in heaven by God Almighty. You're impo- you are important, actually, because God says you are. Uh, Again, in Luke, uh, Jesus says this to those who would follow him. He says, see, I've given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions, specifically 70 that he had sent out, over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice at this. Is that a big deal? Sure it is, but that's not what's important, Jesus says, that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That's the most important thing about you, that you're important. Nobody can take that away from you because God says you are. You're written on the palm of his hand the prophets say, and so is everybody else that you'll ever meet. Every person on this planet is important to God. And so therefore, they're important to us. And what the most important thing about us is our openness to being used by God to actually bring transformation to earth, heaven to earth, for the very transformation of the world. Nothing we could claim or defend as our own. It's something that God is doing. Dallas Willard, uh, who is an important mentor to me, he's now passed on, Uh, He writes it like this. He says, what is really going on is not, after all, what we are doing. Let's think about that. What's going on is much bigger than that. He says, instead of the main show, we are of significance only as a very important. Are you important? Yeah, you are very important, but part of an immense struggle between immense forces of good and evil. There's all sorts of things going on around the world, in the cosmos, above the earth, below the earth, on the earth. And we are just a tiny speck of that going on. But that tiny speck is important nonetheless. You and I are important because God says so. And then last week we talked about that your life is not about you. It it builds on that theme. But you are a part of something much bigger and unending. Something that God is doing. Something much better than we could think or imagine. To the church in Colossae in in the early days of Christianity, Paul writes, set your minds on things that are above then. Right? If this is all true, then... Then set your mind on things of God, not on things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Christ comes in and dwells in us. And when Christ who is your life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It's a wonderful celebration what God is doing in and around and through you. And it is this recognition that we need God in our lives. We need to participate in what God is doing to care for others. 
Because the truth around maturity and growing older is that children care about themselves. Adults care for others. You say that with me? Children care about themselves. Adults care for others. There's nothing wrong with kids caring about themselves. I mean, that's what immature people do. But as you know around here, aging is inevitable. Maturity is optional. So adults, we care for others. That's what we're called to do. So until we lay down our self-importance, we remain blinded to God's plan to bless the world. We are a part of this blessing of the world. That's why we're here. John Tyson puts it this way. He says, you are part of the story, but you're not the whole story. So our kids need to know. You need to know. The people around us need to know. Are you important? Sure. Are you a, a part of the story? Yes, sure. But you're not the whole story, and you're not most important. There are lots of things more important than any one of us. So this week, we come to week four, which is you're not in control. But... God will take care of you. God is in control and God will take care of you in all kinds of wonderful ways. So Jesus teaches this over and over again. He knows our human condition to worry about all kinds of stuff. Scientists have actually figured out that in the olden days, right, caveman days, people would worry about when their fingers would get numb. You know why? Because if they didn't, they would die. They would worry when they saw a grizzly bear because if they didn't, they would get eaten. There are all these sorts of things just in the innateness of ourselves that we were taught, and importantly so, to be afraid of certain things. Unfortunately, that piece of us hasn't changed even when we don't have anything to be afraid of. We actually make up things to be afraid of. Like my air conditioning could go out this week. Is that going to kill you? Well, maybe if you're in the attic. But probably not. Right? Probably not. We call these things first world problems. All these things that we worry and have anxiety about that you're going to be just fine even if they happen. It's just not pleasant. But our minds don't know what to do if we don't have anything to worry about, so we actually make that stuff up. It's super interesting. I hope you'll Google it. It's, it's, it's pretty interesting. So Jesus actually says to this, he knows the way we're wired. He says, do not worry, saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For it is the Gentiles, people who are not people of faith, of not the Jewish faith in particular in his day, who strive for all these things. And indeed, your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But, what's he say? Strive first for the kingdom of God. Cross, front, and center. When Jesus is first, everything else is right. And his righteousness, which is rightness, when things are made right, the way they're supposed to be. And all these things will be given to you as well. You'll have everything you need as long as God's in control. As long as you put God first, it's going to be okay. But a lot of us don't really believe that. For all sorts of reasons, and, and for pretty good reasons, particularly if you grew up in a home where you were not well cared for. It does feel like you need to be in control, because you know what happens when people who are in control, who don't handle that well, and that can bring a lot of pain in people's lives. But here's the downside to that. If we believe that we are in control, we have too much to prove and too much to protect. Too much to prove and too much to protect. So... I'll just use myself as an example. Maybe, maybe this will be true for you, maybe it's not. But for me, I grew up, and I was told you need to make good grades so you can get into the advanced classes in junior high and high school. And I got into the advanced classes in junior high and high school. And then they said, you need to make really good grades so you can get a scholarship so you can go to college because we don't have enough money to send you to college. So you're going to have to do that. And we don't want you to have debt because our family's averse to debt. So we don't want to do that. So you need to make really good grades out of high school so you can get a scholarship to college, which I did. And then I got into college and they said, 
Well, then you need to make really, really good grades so you don't lose your scholarship, and so you'll have good enough grades to get into grad school so you can have a professional job. And so I did that, and then I went to grad school. And, and then basically they're like, you're never going to you know, hold your scholarship unless you make good grades, um, and you probably aren't going to have a good job if you don't do that. So I, so I make good grades to keep my scholarship. I graduate. I get a job. And then, so for the first half of my life then, right, then I, I invest and I make good choices and we save and we're smart with our money. We do all that. And I accumulate the things of the world to take care of my family because you need to be a good person to take care of your family. And then what's before me now in the, in the second half of my life, I'm 54, is now I need to protect those things that I have gotten. And I need to watch the markets and I need to watch where I do and I need to do all this stuff to protect the things that I now have. And you know what happens next? You die. And that's your life. Sounds fun, doesn't it? It's riveting. But that's how most people live here. You don't have to, but we choose to. The question is why? Because we have this illusion that we're in control. We are not. So Jesus says, don't worry about tomorrow. For tomorrow will bring worries of its own. Today's trouble is enough for today. And to that I say, amen. Today's trouble is enough for today, it just is. Les Parrott, uh, who wrote the book Control Freak, he says, God gave us the power to imagine the future, but gave us no power to control it. And that's really where our struggle is. That we can imagine a better day, we can imagine that we're going to be happier if we do this, but we can't make it happen. We can work towards it. But the results aren't ours. And you know this. Any of y'all go on vacation lately? Of course you have. And, and you know that thing that you absolutely have to do for vacation to be worth going? That thing that you absolutely have to do that's going to bring you so much joy? That's the one thing that never happens on vacation. <laughs> right? The restaurant's closed. The park gets rained out or whatever it is. You, you're not in control of those things. We're just not. And here's the thing that's interesting to me. There are people that can have the exact same thing. They can live in the exact same neighborhood. They can drive the exact same car. But one is happy and one is not. Why is that? How could that possibly be the case? Because true happiness is always an inside job. It's your choice. It really is. Whether you're going to choose to be happy or not. When we go on mission trips all around the world, and there are people that have almost nothing. And you know what we find when we go there? They're so miserable. No, they're not. They're joyous. They're happy because they're loved. They're in community. And they know that they're hungry. They know they don't necessarily know where their next meal is coming from. But they do know that they're loved and that God takes care of them. And there's all kinds of joy that I see in in remote places of Mexico and Guatemala and places like El Salvador and Nigeria that I've never seen stateside. Levels Levels of joy and happiness and contentment and connectivity and purpose. It's really quite remarkable. So how could that possibly be? Because it's an inside job. And there are also people who have learned how to do hard things and survive them. So they do have a sense of agency. And that is important. And you can too. But, you know, it's kind of fun to make fun of control freaks because we all have a little bit of that inside of us. So I did a quick Google search, looked for some memes, and these are some of my favorites. First one is this. I'm not really a control freak, but can I show you the right way to do that? (laughs) Right? Sound familiar? Or, perhaps you've known this person, as long as everything's exactly the way I want it, I'm totally flexible. <laughs> I'm interested in your, where are we going to lunch conversations after this, all right? 
And then I came across this one. It says, when you see someone who needs power and control and will not stop until they get it, you are actually seeing someone who is deeply afraid of life. And that's true. And, and I, don't, I don't want anybody to think that I'm making a value judgment of, uh, against folks like this because here's, here's what I found. Most folks that really need a sense of control have a reason for that. More often than not, I've, I'm told stories of, well, I'm, I grew up in an alcoholic's home. And when dad was drinking, it actually was a matter of life and death, whether or not I could go hide the keys. Because otherwise I didn't know if he was going to come home. So yeah, I am absolutely terrified, and I will have control about who drives in my family and when. Always. They've got good reason for that. But it also is debilitating to them and messes up their life in other ways until they get on top of that. Does that make sense to you? And they need help with that. That's not a judgment against them. It's like, yeah, you do have a reason for that, but let's look at that. You can actually have a better life than that. You don't have to be afraid every time somebody drives a car in your family. So Father Roar would say it like this. When you set yourself up to think you deserve or expect or need something to happen, you are setting yourself up for constant unhappiness. That's a terrible way to live. It's a terrible way to live. And you all know this. I mean, what makes you upset is unmet expectations. And so I learned early on, set your expectations low and leap over them. Right? That doesn't sound right, does it? But you and I, we, we, have a, we have a choice, each and every one of us, since this is an inside job. You have a choice to make between control and what's that word? Surrender. It's kind of even hard to say, isn't it? Surrender. But this very thing that our culture hates is the way to life. It's always been that way. You look at the life of Jesus, the life of his mother Mary, the life of any of the major figures in the Bible in the Old Testament, Abraham, David, Isaac, Joseph. That's true today. For those of you familiar with the 12-step programs, that all starts with surrender, doesn't it? Right? In the 12 steps, the first step is this. We admitted we were what? What's the word? Powerless. Over, and then you fill in the blank. If it's, if it's AA, it's alcohol. If it's a different A, it's a different word. That our lives had become unmanageable. That's step one. It's just surrender. This is the thing that actually gives you life, gives you freedom, gives you joy, gives you your life back. When you realize you, it's not on you. But it doesn't stop there. You, you have to go to step two, which is we come to believe that a power, God, greater than ourselves, could restore us, could redeem us to sanity, make our lives whole again. Around here, we call that Jesus. He's the one that redeems us, makes us whole. So yes, Lord, we, we can't do it all, and we're trusting you to guide us into the way that leads to life. And so we make a decision, step three, to turn our will and our lives truly over to the care of God as we understood him. And for us here, that's the person of Jesus Christ, front and center. And we look at his life, the way he lived his life, not just what he said, that's important, but also what he did, how he lived, how he blessed and healed the sick and fed the poor, clothed them, cared for them forgave them that's who we emulate now there are nine other steps we won't go into them here today but i recommend them to you father roar says people who are connected to their source jesus do not need to steer their own life anymore and agenda you don't have to do that you can give that up they know that it is being done for them in a much better way than they ever could than you ever could 
One of my favorite scriptures in all the Bible comes from Paul talking to the folks in southern Turkey, uh, which was Ephesus at the time, to the, to the church in Ephesus. And, and hear, hear this prayer of Paul. He says, now to him, Jesus, who by the work it within us is able to accomplish, read this with me, abundantly far more than all we can ask or imagine. Imagine that. I mean, really, you, you can imagine a lot. And God is better than that because God has all knowledge and all power and is everywhere. So God can do more for you than you can do for yourself. Amen. That's absolutely true. God can do anything. So God can do more than we can all ask or imagine. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. God has a better plan for your life than you can plan yourself for your life. And that's good news. So surrender is not becoming a puppet. It's not being naive. It's not being irresponsible. And it's not stopping all planning. Some planning is good. But you have to leave the results to God. You have to hold those lightly for your life to really take off and be joyful. And then Paul writes to the early church in Corinth. He's like, we, we can never forget this, friends. He says, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. You and I, we're all a part of the same thing, whether we know it or not. And it is, Paul says, that there are many members. Yeah. Yet one body. The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Why? Because you're the body of Christ. And individually, members of it, every single part of the body is important. Right? If your heart stops, that's the end of the rest of your body. If your mind stops, that's the end of the rest of your body. You need those things. And every other organ that goes with it, you you try living without your kidneys, it is a rough go. You need it. And here's the thing, we need each other. We don't even know how we need each other. Any more than we know what our body needs until we're missing something, like potassium. It'll mess you up. You need those levels to be right. Right? So Father Roar says it like this. Surrender is the necessary and universal starting point for a serious spiritual walk. It all starts with surrender. It's all step one. Then what is this surrender thing that we're talking about? Well, it's a quiet willingness to trust God, to trust that you really are loved by God, which enables you to be used as a conduit of God's love and blessing to others because you are safe in God's good hands. You don't have to worry. Father Roar says, when you are loved rightly, you're actually more of yourself, not less of yourself. You're your true self than ever. You're becoming the very thing. You're being redeemed into the image of God that God created you to do all along. Because it's true, we don't happen, we don't get to choose what happens to us. We just don't. But we can cooperate with grace and choose our response to it. God is always working for your good. Always. There's never a time that God is not working for your good whether you know it or not. The Bible says this in Romans, Paul writing to really all of us in this sort of open letter to Rome. He says, I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing you have done, nothing you are doing, nothing you can do. Which is why in our tradition we baptize people once. To, to exclamate the point that there is nothing you can do to separate you from the love of God as the Bible teaches us. What is true is that you can move away from God. You can be less close to God by your own choice. But that doesn't mean change God at all. It doesn't change God's character at all. 
Whether you are in the throes of making bad decisions, whether you're recovering from those decisions, whether you're paying the price for those decisions, whether you've repented of those decisions, whether you're in full connection with God or not, God hasn't changed at all through any of that. You've changed. You're changing. Your relationship with God is changing, and hopefully for the better, but God has never stopped loving you. He's there before you mess up, when you mess up, after you mess up, when you're sorry for it, when you're not sorry for it. God doesn't change. God is love. God is light. In him is no darkness at all. We know this, but we forget it. So here's the thing. We are not in control, friends, but we are guided. The Holy Spirit is within you and around you trying to woo you to goodness and to life. The question is, will you pay attention? And when you do, really amazing things happen that you could not possibly imagine. Better, even better. Well, last night of my college career, I went to Tumbleweeds, that holy sacred space <laughs> in, um, in Stillwater. And I saw a girl that I'd really, really, really wanted to date about three years earlier. It just wasn't time. Timing wasn't right. Then I told her, I said, I'm either going to work in Oklahoma City or New York. And so I took the job in New York because I was 22. And, you know, I'd heard that if you could make it there, you could make it anywhere. Uh, New York. Thank you for everybody over 50 who gets that reference. <laughs> so, um, there was a wedding, though, um, that I was supposed to attend about this time of year. Um, and so I had to go to my employer. Y'all who have first jobs, you know how scary this is to go say to your employer, I know you just hired me, but I really need this off because I've got a wedding. And they're like, okay, okay, kid, you can go. So, but in the, in the so this is 1990, summer of 90. Um, New York was rougher then. Like, you had to be careful, like, what cab you went in, because you might go to the airport or you might go to Jersey. You just didn't know what was going to happen to you. And so the, the flight schedule was this, that I was going to go from Midtown, where I worked, uh, to LaGuardia Airport. And uh, now, as then, it was not ever much fun. And it always crowded, things were always delayed, always sort of a mess. And, but I got there, and, and everybody told me that was flying in those days, it may still be true, Never, ever, ever check your bags out of LaGuardia. You'll never see them again. And you just have to keep them with you. Take it on your person. Check it yourself. Put it in an overhead bin. Just take what you need. Nothing more. Buy it there. It's better than losing it. And, and you know, and the deal. Because you're going to go to DFW. You're going to find a Dallas-Fort Worth. Um, and you're going to be there. And then you're going to take a little puddle jumper from there to Lawton. Have you all ever flown into Lawton? It is lovely. <laughs> There's nothing there. Nothing there. That's, that, that's, that's a real, live, real um, shot of Lawton Airport. Um, so, that was the plan. And then, I was going to get in with my parents. And for those of you who are 22, you know how much fun it is to ride with your parents' places. Then you're, you're going to go up to this wedding. I'm going to be fine. Well, the problem was, when we were almost to Dallas, I was looking out the window, and the clouds were getting taller and taller and taller and some even taller than the airplane i was like wow that you know looks rough and the pilot comes on and he says um we are gonna need to go to tulsa to refuel we don't have enough fuel to like keep at this to circle so we got to go to tulsa um and we're gonna land there uh, but i need you to know that pretty much anybody who was getting a connecting flight there you're missing it like you're gonna spend the night at the airport um you're you know you're just toast i'm sorry that's it he didn't use those terms but that's how i heard it and so um, that was it. And so then we landed in Tulsa. It was almost midnight. And everything was shut down. Everything was dark. Um, 
And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I'm in Tulsa. Edmond's not that far from Tulsa. And if I miss my flight to Lawton, then my, really my only other choice is then is a bus or to be late to the wedding so I could bus myself from Dallas to Lawton to get in a car with my folks to go to Edmond or I could just get off here. I'll just grab my bag and I'll just get off. Everything's closed, but I mean, if I'm going to sleep in an airport, the drive's actually shorter from here than there. I'm 22, why not? So I say, I'm getting off the plane. And the flight attendants were like, no, you don't do that. I'm like, yeah. They're like, you, you know we're in Tulsa. I'm like, yeah. I'm like, okay. And they open it up. They're like, that's on you. Like, you understand this is refundable. You know, they're checking all the boxes. I'm like, I'm out. And I go to a payphone. And I call, you all know what payphones are? Little quarters, put those in there. And I dial it up, and I call my new girlfriend. Because she lives in Tulsa. And that's her there. That's her there. I'm like, I call her up and I say, hey, come get me. She goes, where are you? It's almost midnight. I'm like, I know. Can you come get me? I'm at the airport. She goes, you are? I'm on my way. And then I hear like, mom, I'm going to the airport. And her mom's like, why? You know, I'm going to go meet this boy that I'm dating. I'm bringing him home because, you know, we've been dating a long time, like two weeks. So, <laughs> and so we, we, you know, we make it to the wedding and, and it's great. And this is where you, oh, see, this is where 22, 21. Yeah. And that moment, that decision about whether I stay on the plane that's, you know, rerouted to Tulsa or whether I do the other has changed my entire life. All of it, that one moment. Not that I planned it. To which, to this day, my mother says, you prayed for that, didn't you? <laughs> God knows my heart. I can't help that. So Father Rohr says this. He says, having total control and even the value of being in control is a major desire and, read it with me, illusion. That's good news for you, actually. Really good news for you. In the early years of life, yet many hold on to it until their last breath. Try practicing to release control early in your life, and it will make your second half life much so happier, much happier. Now, one of the things that nobody wants to talk about or think about is that as you age, you lose control. You just do, if you're fortunate to live that long. You live to be old enough, you will not determine when you get up in the morning. You won't choose what you eat for breakfast. That'll be chosen for you. You won't, be, uh, you won't get to choose whether you eat lunch or what you eat for lunch or for dinner or when you go to bed or when you bathe and sometimes not even when you go to the bathroom. It is brutal. And many of you have not seen that yet. You're not in that station of life yet, but that's coming if you're fortunate to have good care. And over the last nine weeks, we've walked a very difficult journey with my family. No longer ambulatory, either of my folks. And they're, they're well taken care of at one of the best places in the city. So I'm, I'm not asking you to feel, oh, woe is me. No, not at all. They're in good care. But make no mistake, they don't have a lot of control in their life. And it's hard on them. It's hard on them. So you have a choice to make. Are you going to start giving up control now so that when you have to do that then, and you will, can you do it? Or are you going to get kicked out? You've got a choice to make. Because that control thing is real. And you can either release it and learn how to do that and enjoy, or you can fight it until your last breath. 
And some do. But here, here's the thing I want you to know. My folks have it good, really good. Because just a couple miles from there, at the fountains of Canterbury, people gave their life savings to move into that place. And on June 28th, that senior living community, they made an announcement to the people. They said, we need to have a, a meeting in two hours. They came there and they said, we're closing. You have to be out of here by September 1. At 91. Now, I want you to understand this. They did the school. They did the collections. They did the saving. They did the protecting. They poured it in. They went there in good faith. And they're on the street. No fault of their own. They did nothing wrong. God's not punishing them. So one resident, you can read all this in the Oklahoma, by the way. One resident who moved there four years ago to be his last place to take good care of his wife. He's 91. And he says, I'm 91 and about to be homeless. I mean, I don't even know how this is legal, but it's happening. And the reason I know that is because my folks are at a place about a couple miles north, and they're just inundated with people trying to find a place to live, trying to figure this out in their 90s. Some in their late 90s, even early 100s. And then I came across this line in the article, which I hope I never forget. He said, this 91-year-old man, he said, you know, I'm a man of faith. So I have confidence it's going to work out. It's just not pleasant. Now that's a man who knows how to give up control and surrender and trust God with his life. I hope I'll be that mature when I get there. Don't you? That when you get the worst news that you could possibly get at that stage of your life, you're saying, eh, this is unpleasant. This thing about surrender, it's a real deal. Change your life. Might save your life, actually. So, how do we do this? How do, how do we learn? How do we grow into this? Well, here you go. Number one, plan a day with no agenda. I know what you're thinking. You can't plan a day with no agenda. Because you're planning. Just go with it. <laughs> the Bible calls that Sabbath. Where God's in charge and you're not. And you're trusting God with 24 hours. And if at some point in your life you can actually trust God every week with 24 hours, you might be able to start trusting Him with the rest of your life. Which make all this a lot easier. And then, if you're not ready for that step, you could try this. Simply trust God and give up control of something today, absolutely today before the sun goes down, as a practice for the final letting go that we call death. Because as someone who sees people when they die, I can tell you there's a huge difference between people who have learned to let go and surrender and trust God and those who have not. It's completely different. And you want to be ready for that day. That's why we have this day, to prepare for that day. Which then, we live forever to the glory of God. I hope we'll be ready, don't you? Let's pray together. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever.